You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. God, we ask that as we come to your word, that you would open our eyes to see you would open our hearts to believe. And Lord, we pray that the, the gems of truth that you, have, um, that you have scattered in your word and these words, Lord, we pray that we would mine them out, that we would treasure them, that we would take them to heart, that we would believe them, and that we would walk in them. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> have you heard, ever heard or used the phrase, I'll pray for you or we'll pray for you? 
You ever been on the giving end of that or on the receiving end of that? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful sentiment if it's meant. Sometimes it just becomes a cliche. I know I've said it. I said it this morning several times actually already. This sentiment of I'll pray for you or we'll be praying for you. And when it's meant, it really is a very profound statement. You're actually saying a lot when you tell someone that you're praying for them, if you really mean it. One is that you're saying, I care about you. Secondly, you're saying, I care about what you care about. And then thirdly, you're saying, I believe that there is something out there. There's a deity out there. There's a God out there that cares about you too. And I'm going to go to him about this because I think he can do something about it. It's really a profound statement to, to pray for somebody or to say that you're praying for someone and to actually pray for them. It's a really big statement. So today's message is from John 17, and the title of this message is Christ Prays for Us. Think about that for just a moment. The God-man prays for us. All those things we said about us being willing to pray for others or others pray for us, this tells us that when Christ prays for us, he does care about us. And he cares about what we care about. And he really does believe that there is a God out there that he is in union with, as part of the Trinity, that he himself is, that can do something about it. And so he prays. It's a profound thought to think of God praying to God for us. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Where we're at in the Gospel of John, this biography of Jesus by one of Jesus' closest disciples, John, written later after the other three Gospels to kind of fill in some of the cracks, answer some of the questions. Um, John is wanting us to in, be introduced to this Jesus, this God-man who came to save, uh, save the world from their sins. All who would trust in him, you know you know it, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's really the theme of John. And so here we are, we've, we've made it through the works of Jesus. Uh, John has laid out his argument for why we should believe that Jesus is God, the one who can rescue us from our sins. And then we made this turn in chapter 13 into what's called the farewell discourse. Jesus is spending some intimate time with his disciples. He's instituted the Lord's Supper and he's begun to teach them about what life without him is going to be like, or more, more accurately, life with him once he leaves. How is he going to be with them? In what ways are they to walk things out? Um, how is this going to be, what, how, in, in what ways is he going to send the Holy Spirit? How is he going to stay connected with his disciples after he departs? And he's about to go to the cross. And what we have in John 14, 1, really the beginning, or at the, very, at the very beginning of the farewell discourse, we have this phrase, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's really the theme of it, is he's like, I want you to trust me about what's coming. I'm about to leave you, the next 24 hours are going to be insane as I'm being put to death, and I'm about to leave, and you're going to have to walk these things out until I come again, and I want you to not be troubled by this. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then, and then he goes on to talk about a lot of different things. Persecution, the helper, he's going to prepare a place for them, all of these things. And then it culminates in chapter 1633 that we looked at last week. It says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That was his intention with the farewell discourse is that his disciples would have peace. Regardless of what circumstances come at them in the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. It will not be safe. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It will turn out good. Not safe, but good. 
So his instruction is meant to be encouraging, stabilizing, orientating, peace-giving. And, and now we come to uh, the, the, what's called the high priestly prayer, where Jesus culminates his farewell discourse by praying with and for them. In a very high priestly manner, a priest stands between God and man, advocating for man on behalf of God and advocating for man before God. He stands between. And so now we have this prayer of the God-man standing between humanity and his disciples and God the Father. And what is he pleading for them? What is he requesting of the Father? Look at verse 17.1. This is interesting. He says, Father, the hour has come. What does that mean? It means the hour of his execution has come. The hour of his atonement on the cross has come. If you were to go back to John chapter 2, verse 4, at his first miracle, he says, his hour has not yet come. In John, 13, or John 7, verse 30, and in John 8, verse 20, he says that his hour has not yet come. In John 12, 27, he finally says his hour is coming. And now, in John 17, 1, we have this momentous statement of now, Father, the hour has come for atonement to be made for humanity. For me to go to the cross as we had planned from eternity past, the hour has come. It is time to do the work of redemption, to reverse the curse that happened in Genesis chapter 3. The hour has come. So just think of all of this intensity, all that's about to happen. The centerpiece of human history is about to take place. The critical event is about to take place, and we get to have this conversation. We get to peek in on this conversation between God the Father and God the Son prior to them executing the greatest moment in human history to redeem humanity. What is on the heart of Jesus? What is he thinking about? What is he concerned about? What is he what is, what, what is going on here? So I want to break this down into three parts. I want to, first of all, marvel at the beauty of Christ's prayer. It is stunningly beautiful how this, this prayer is constructed. Its structure, its themes, its flow. So we're going to spend a few minutes together just looking at the beauty of this prayer and the substance of it. We won't be able to break down every single little verse. You could spend, we could spend a month worth of sermons on every phrase. It's so rich. Some have said that it's almost like the entire Gospel of John in prayer form. Jesus talks so much about what he's accomplished and what God's doing and what he wants for his disciples. And so we won't be able to get into all the details, but I want you to see the richness of it in its, whole, in its wholeness there. Secondly, I want to marvel with you about the beauty of Christ's heart for us. You can tell a lot about a person by how they pray and what they pray for. That is a bit of a glimpse into their soul. Not to put any pressure on you when you pray in front of others. Be yourself. But there's a lot about yourself that you're saying by what and how you pray. And we're going to learn about a lot about the heart of Jesus Christ in this prayer. And then thirdly, I want, you to, I want to marvel with you at the beauty of Christ's church. Because, spoiler alert, the bulk of this prayer is about Jesus' desire for his church. So we're going to apply that to us as a church. It's talking about the church universal, but it does apply specifically to our local church. What does Jesus want? What has he done? What does he desire his bride, the church, to be like? And I think it will surprise you just how beautiful Christ finds his church to be and how much he has labored and continues to labor 
to make his church as beautiful as he intends it to be. So that's what we want to look at. The beauty of Christ's prayer, the beauty of Christ's heart, and the beauty of Christ's church. So let me, let's break into the beauty of Christ's prayer here. So we're going to get a little technical here for a few minutes, but I want you to just show you the mastery, the masterpiece that this prayer is. There's three subjects. Three subjects. <clears throat> he prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. Father, glorify me. Here's what I've done. And here's, he begins to have this intimate conversation between he and the Father. And he himself is the subject of his prayers in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 11, he then turns his prayer for the, the, the eleven. Remember, Judas has abandoned them, so now there's just the eleven, and he's praying in the moment for those that he's just given the farewell discourse to. They're about to have the craziest night of their lives, uh, craziest day ahead of them, craziest weekend ever, and a wild life after that as they become the primary witnesses, authoritative witnesses of Jesus' life, and so he prays for them. And then in verses 20 through 26, we have a prayer for all the disciples of all ages, all those who will hear this message and believe of which we are part, those of us that have put their, our faith in Jesus. So three subjects, himself, the eleven, and all disciples of all ages, that's what's on his heart as he's about to go to the cross, is himself, the eleven, and all disciples. And there's five requests. Interestingly, all of these words <laughs> where Jesus is describing and having this conversation with God about all the things uh, there's actually only five requests, only five petitions, five things that he's asking for. In 17, 1 through 5, he is praying for the glory with the Father. He's praying that he would be glorified and share in the glory and display the glory of the Father. Look at verse 1. Glorify, here you go, here's the petition. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So glory in its noun form is referring to the goodness of God displayed. So when we think of glory, in Hebrew it means weightiness, but if you go to Exodus chapter 33, Moses tells God, show me your glory. And God's like, you can't handle my glory. It'll kill you. You're a little tiny dirt person. I'm the, I am the huge God of the universe. So he says, but, but Moses insists, and so God's like, I'm going to tuck you into this little rock here. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to let my shadow pass by. And he says something very interesting. He says, I will make all of my goodness pass by you. So there is a connection that God himself makes between glory and goodness. So to behold the glory of God is to in, in experience, to behold the goodness of God. Okay? So that's part of it. But when we talk about glorifying God in its verb form, we're talking about his goodness being enjoyed experienced. So the glory of God is his goodness on display. Glorifying is his glory enjoyed, experienced. Father, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Put it on display and I want to enjoy it with you, Father. I glorified you on the earth, verse 4 says, having accomplished the work that you've given me to do. I have made your goodness tasteable, touchable. I have glorified you on the earth. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory, the goodness that you, that I had with you before the world be existed. And so what's going to happen is that he is saying that going to the cross is going to be the goodness of God displayed, 
And the cross is going to be the place where the goodness of God is enjoyed, which is why we're a cross-centered church. We preach the cross and Christ crucified. Because counterintuitively as it is, as brutal as that execution was, the goodness of God was put on display in the redemption of sinners. And that's why we go there in confession every Sunday and hopefully all the times we go to the cross because that's where it's enjoyed, the goodness of God, is trusting in what Christ has done for us. Secondly, the second request is perseverance or preservation. Maybe that's a better way to say it. The preservation of his disciples. Preservance. I don't know if I put if that's an, even a word, but you get it. The preserving of the of the disciples. Look at verse six. So now that it changes, and his second request comes up in six through fifteen. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. So now he's just describing the situation, probably for the benefit of the disciples. But he's having this conversation with God. It's all description. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know. In, in the truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, yours are mine. I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Now he gets to his request. Keep them in your name. God, do not let them fall away. Keep them in your name. That's his request. Preserve them. Give them perseverance, which you have given me that they may be, with, may be one, even as we are one. While I am with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have kept them in your word, and the The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you, and here's the same request again in a different form, keep them in your name. Here, keep them from the evil one. There's there's someone out there. The evil one wants to pick them off, wants them to turn away, wants them abandoned, to leave the church, to leave Christianity, to leave the gospel. And I'm asking, Father, that you keep them in your name and away from the evil one. I have been keeping them all this time, Father, but I'm coming to you, and I want you to keep them. The third request is for sanctification of his disciples by the word. Look at 16 through 19. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And here's the request, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into, into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus is deeply concerned about his disciples growing in holiness, becoming like him, turning away from sin, being cleansed, being washed. In fact, Ephesians 5 says that Jesus washes his bride with the water of the word. Father, wash them in the water of the word, which is why we've got to be Bible people. The word of the gospel, the word of scripture is how we are sanctified and that's on the heart of Christ. As he's going to the cross, I want them to be holy. I want them to be set free from sin. So God, he's praying for glory. He's praying for the preservation of his disciples and he's praying for their holiness by the word. Make them word people. Make them Bible people and cleanse them and wash them by the word. Fourthly, He prays, his fourth request is for unity like the Trinity among all disciples. I do not ask for these only, verse 20, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which would include us, that they may all be one. It doesn't say that they would all be right. It doesn't say that they would always be successful. It doesn't say any of those things. The primary concern is that they be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what's the apologetic to the world? What's going to be the convincing, what's going to convince people that the gospel's true? The unity of the disciples. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Should be rock solid arguments. Should be compelling truths that convince the people of the world. And those matter. But it's going to be the unity of, of the church, of the disciples, that's going to be like, yeah, I can't explain that. Those two people don't think the same on everything. But, there's, but they love each other, and I can't explain that. We're all in our tribes, aren't we, in the world? Where we all think the same thing. We want to be around people that think the same thing as us, right? But when all of a sudden you've got a bunch of people from different classes and different, different persuasions and different things, and they're loving one another, there's something otherworldly about that, and he's praying for that. I don't know if you watch like, some of those Olympic rowing teams pretty impressive that you can get all of those people rowing because they're all listening to what's called the coxswain in the front, right? He's giving instructions and they're just, they're just on point again and again, listening to the one at the front of the boat. And the idea is, is that we're, we all as believers need to be rowing in unity with one another, listening to Jesus Christ, right? If you had a hundred pianos and you wanted to tune them, you don't tune them to each other you take a tuning fork and they all tune to the same fork and then they'll be in tune with each other. So to the extent that we make Jesus King and Lord over everything, so we don't seek unity with one another just out of unity's sake. But in our unity with Jesus, us all being tuned to Him will be in tune with each other. Do you get it? Yeah. Don Carson puts it this way. He's a theologian brilliant man. Unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by adherence to the apostolic gospel. So the way we have unity is not by pushing all of our convictions down and just going, you know what, let's just make this as flat and vanilla Christianity as possible. As long as we just keep it just as flat and just, just say yes to Jesus or whatever and you're in, like as long as we just keep it really flat and kind of minimalist, then we'll have unity, and it's just not true. What it is, is grabbing Christ in all of his fullness, and us all tuning ourselves fully to him that will then have unity. So it's not about stamping down all of our differences, it's about grabbing hold of Christ and being Jesus Bible people. And then the unity of all disciples with himself, union of all disciples with himself. Look at verse 24. I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have, you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he desires that he would be united with them. Now he's speaking about, I think at the end, I want to spend eternity with these, but I think there's also a little bit of like this union with himself, even now. This union, like make them one with me, union with Christ. 
to be enraptured in the delight the Trinity has among themselves. Lord, I want them to be with me, and I want them to enjoy you and enjoy what we have. I want them to come with. I want them to be a part of it now and ultimately in glory. So you see the five requests? Glory. Perseverance or preservation, you could put it. Sanctification, unity, and union of all disciples with himself. Now I want to show you one other thing here. Uh, just the structure of this psalm is, uh, is amazing. It's called a chiasm. Okay, this is a Hebrew form, a he- Hebrew poetic form. And this is strange to us as English speakers, but this is magnificent. The way a chiasm works is it's the, the first and the, ba- and the last match up thematically, kind of like in a poem. And then the next ones, and what happens is, is that the, the, the driving point of the passage is in the very center. So let's, it's like climbing a mountain. You go up the mountain, you get to the peak, right? And then you come back down the mountain and you're hitting all those mile markers on the way down, right? So that's how a chiasm works. Another way to put it is like you see a wedding party. If there was a wedding party standing up here and you were to just look at it right to left, you would go, well, the first thing and the last thing matter the most, right? No. What happens is those two match and walk in together. Those two match and walk in together. And the center is what matters, right? All of those things are designed to point to the center and, and show the implications of that. Does that make sense? This is the Hebrew. This is all over your Bibles if you have eyes to see it. And so Jesus takes in his prayer, does a chiasm. And this is what's amazing. One through five matches 17 through 26. The glory, it's about glory with the, with the Father before the world existed. You see that? The A's match up. The glory that I had with you before the world existed, and then in 24 through 26, my glory that you have given me before, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So that's the the capstones on the ends, climbing up the mountain. The B sections go together. I have given them the words that you gave me. uh, The other B, verses 14 through 26, I have given them your word. Verse 11, I am coming to you. 17 or verse 13 i am coming to you and then right in the center verse 12 that the scriptures may be fulfilled jesus is fulfilling the old testament prophecies he's solving the old testament problem of how can a holy god be with sinful humanity he's going to fix it right here and notice that the entire psalm is structured about what he has done and then based on what he has done he is making these requests for his disciples which is exactly how the gospel works this chiastic structure and the requests work together to show us that the foundation of our salvation is who Jesus is and what he has done. And then out of that comes the overflow, the blessing, the benefit of the fact that we can share in God's glory, we can be kept in his name, we can be sanctified by his word, we can be united together, and we can have union with Jesus Christ. You see the mastery of what's happening here? The foundation, the structure, is all about what God has done to save humanity and the benefit, the overflow, the things that we get because of that, because of who God is, what Christ has done, is salvation. Christ went to the cross for us. And we, and now he's praying based on what he has done to extend these graces to us. Is that not marvelous? It's stunning. It's embedded in the structure of the text, how the gospel works. And then it's prayed out beautifully from the heart of Christ. So let's look at his heart for just a moment. This will go quickly. Look at the beauty of Christ's heart. I want you to see three things. First, notice that Jesus loves the Father. 
Did you get that in this passage? Jesus loves the Father. There are some out there that think that somehow the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are at odds with each other. The God in the Old Testament, He's angry and wrathful and the gospel and the God in the New Testament, He's nice and cuddly and has blonde hair and blue eyes and He's just wonderful, right? That is not what the biblical picture is. They're going to the cross and the Father and the Son are working together. Yes, the Father will pour out His wrath on the Son, but the Son is willingly taking on that wrath because He delights in the Father. And He wants to bring us into that delight as well. Let's not pit the Father against the Son in an unhealthy way. Jesus loves the Father. He's going to the cross because He loves the Father. And He's longing for what's on the other side of the cross. Look at this, verse 17, verse 1. Glorify your Son that your Son may, be, may glorify you. I just want to make the Father happy. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you. That is the greatest thing in all of the universe is to know you. And I know you, Father. And I want them to know you too. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You gave me an assignment, and I was so pleased to accomplish it, Father. I just love you so much, I want to obey you. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I can't wait to get back to you. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you. Verse 21, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, right? Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Do you see the sweetness of that? Father, I know your love. And I just am dying for these to know your love too. Verse 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world, Father. And verse 26, I have made known to you, to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you see the love Jesus has for the Father? It's overflowing in his heart. And it's resulted in his joyful obedience and he can't wait to be back with the Father. Secondly, look at how Jesus loves his disciples. You notice his relational concern for them. Look at verses 2 and 3. You have given me them, you have given him, meaning himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you. I want them to know you. I love them, Father. I love the ones you've given me. And I want them to know you. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Verses 8 and 9, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Jesus has a love for the world, but he has a special love for his own disciples. I might love the neighbor kids down the street, might be willing to do something for them, but they're not my kids. I love my kids, right? And that's how it is with God. God loves the world. But he loves his kids. He loves his disciples. So he's like, I'm not praying about the world. I'm not concerned about the world. I'm concerned about my people. I'm praying for them because they are yours. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Remember, glorified, the experience and enjoyment of goodness. I am delighted in them experiencing my goodness Verse 11, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 12, I have kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them because I love them. Verse 13, 
that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The delight of loving you, Father, I want them to have that joy, and I'm dying to give it to them. Verse 14, I have given them your word. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. I care about them. Don't let them be victimized. Don't let them be taken out. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. I'm going to go to the cross for them. I'm going to be raised to life again. I have lived a life of perfect righteousness for them. I have forsaken sin. I have resisted the devil. I have been the perfect human for them, that they may be sanctified in the truth. Verse 21, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. 22 through 24, we're just going to keep going. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Your goodness that I've experienced, I'm giving it to them. That they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. I so want them to be with me. I love them. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. We're going to come back to that in a moment. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I love them, Father. And I want them to know it and feel it and experience it. So you see the heart of Christ, his love for the Father his overflowing love for his disciples, you and me. And Jesus loves to intercede. Intercede's a fancy word for pray for. He loves to pray. Verse 17, 9. No one's twisting his arm here to go to the Father on our behalf. He's willingly going there. It makes sense. 17, 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, they sent, for they are yours. Verse 18 and 19. You sent me into the world, and I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be with them, and I in them. Romans 8:34 tells us, that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he went to the right hand of the Father, and here's what he's doing right now and has been doing for 2,000 years. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us, present tense, is interceding for us. Jesus didn't stop praying when he went to heaven. He continues to pray. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Don't condemn them for that sin, Father. Put it on me. Put it on me. An ever-present advocate. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I don't know how often you think about that. But Christ's love of the Father and his love for you and me means that he is interceding right now nonstop for you. He can't get you off of his mind. And he can't help but talk about it with the Father. Right now. 
That's part of what's keeping you saved right now is the fact that the intercession of Christ, he's continuing to hold and keep you. Jesus is interceding for you right now and he loves doing it. So Jesus says, I'll pray for you. I am praying for you. I've always been praying for you. I was praying for you before the world began. What might Jesus be praying for us right now? In 2020, all the contentious things going on, COVID, everything, he is praying, I think, these same things. God, glorify your son. Preserve your people. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Keep them united. Don't let any of these worldly things divide them. And may they have union with me. I'm not praying for the world and what happens in the world. Just in some sense, doesn't care about that. He cares about the well-being of his kids. And so here we see the beauty of Christ's church. This is a gathering of people, called out people, disciples of Jesus, who are called to live into the prayer that Jesus prayed for us. We are the people, we are the place where these things are are being answered. Jesus' prayer is being answered. How? Because we're enjoying Trinitarian glory. That's why we have in our statement of faith, or not our statement of faith, but in kind of our purpose statement, to enjoy, display, and share God's redeeming grace with the world. To enjoy God, enjoy Trinitarian glory because Christ paid for us to have it. Let's enjoy it. To persevere in God's name, that's why we as a church want to persevere in his name. We've got to work together. Part of the answer to that prayer is brothers and sisters who are covenanted together, making a real promise before God and with one another to persevere in his name, to mature by the scriptures, to be sanctified, to to be washed by Christ and his word, uniting together for Christ's sake, giving a real supernatural unity that isn't just based on shared demographics, shared race, shared politics, shared perspectives, shared economic, none of that united around Jesus and the gospel and then unionized with Jesus Christ. Not like we're forming a union here, but we're being made one with Christ. We are one with Christ through the gospel. We will be one with him forever and we are enjoying and we're pursuing and we're pressing in together this unionizing with Jesus Christ. Practically, here at Redeeming Grace Church, we want to see this prayer of Jesus answered. And one of the ways that we want to live into the answer to Jesus' prayer, because I think when Jesus prays a prayer, he gets the answer, right? So these things about glory and preserving the saints and sanctification and unity and union will be answered in his church, and we want to live into that. And that's part of why we have covenant church membership here is because we want to see and pursue and grab onto with all of our hearts what Jesus prayed for. Not that we're making it happen, but this is how we put it together. And I think I've got a picture just of our covenant on there. I don't know if you can see it. This is why this is such a big deal to us. And we're not trying to like manipulate anybody to being a covenant member of our church. But I just want you to know that we take John 17 in his prayer so seriously that we want to put feet to it. We want to put our our name on the line. We want to be held accountable. We want to go all in on this, that we're willing to sign on the dotted line to follow Jesus on his terms together because 
of that, okay? I know there's other ways to think about that, but for us, it's just like, okay, how does John 17 actually take on flesh? Man, we want to live into it. We want to be committed to it. We want to be held accountable to God and each other, and this is one way that we do that. Just so you understand where we're coming from is that John 17 motivates some of our, the reason why we do church the way we do it. We want to sign on the dotted line. We want to be held accountable, and we want John 17 to be something we really live and lean into. So let me close with these applications. Bottom line, what do you walk away with today? I got three things for you. One is, I just want you simply to know that Jesus is praying like this for you and has been during this sermon. He is praying for you like this always. In the hospital bed, in the car accident, in the funeral home, He is praying like this for you, and you just need to know that. Just know that Jesus is praying like this for you always, and he's praying these kinds of things for you. This is what he wants for you. I don't know if it's what you want for yourself, but it's what he wants for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is perhaps the most true thing about you, that Jesus is praying for you. And if you're not a believer... This can indeed be true for you right now. To turn from your sin and your self-reliance and throw yourself totally on this one who is praying for us, who loves the Father, who loves us, and who lives to make intercession for us. That one went to the cross and bore the wrath of God for your sin, took the punishment so that there would be none left for you and only righteousness and goodness, that the glory of God would be fully tasted and experienced We get little tastes of it in this world, right? You have kids and you have grandkids and you have these wonderful euphoric experiences and you go out in nature and you get these little glimpses of God's goodness here and there and you love them and you desire them and you long for them. But how much better to know and enjoy the source of them for eternity? And that's what Jesus has done. He's continued to give grace to a sinful humanity, to a broken world in the hopes that they will turn to him and go, look what I've done for you. Why do you resist me? I love you. I died for you. And I live to make intercession for you. And so the door is open to you. Turn from sin and trust in him. Live for his glory. Persevere in his name and away from evil. Mature in the scriptures. Unite with the gospel preaching church and be united one with Jesus Christ by faith into eternity. Secondly, I want you to know that Christ's heart lives for these realities always. Jesus is madly in love with the Father, always has been, always will be. Jesus is madly in love with his disciples, always has been, and always will be. And Jesus is resolved for eternity to bring those two loves together. And is laboring in prayer right now until it happens. He'll never stop doing that. He will bear his scars for eternity because he is so in love with the Father and so in love with his people And he was willing to do whatever it took to bring them together. Let us enter into that. And then lastly, join Jesus in living and praying with all your heart towards these same priorities. Live into the prayer of Jesus. Live and pray these kinds of things. So as you're praying about our country, or you're praying about the church, or you're praying about your kids, or your grandkids, or you're praying about whatever, pray these things. Pray these things first, that God be glorified that the Christians be preserved, 
that the Christians be sanctified holier through the word, that they be unified around the gospel, and that they experience union with Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for John 17. What a glorious, glorious capstone. The final words of instruction you gave to your disciples uh, before going to the cross. The capstone of, 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 of helping them understand what life when he ascends and they're having to do uh, these things without Jesus in his bodily form on earth uh, to capstone it with this kind of prayer. And Lord, we thank you that you continue to be a high priest who prays, that you continue to whisper and shout these things into the Father's ear and he is happy to receive them and happy to give them. So Lord, I pray that we would live into those realities with all of our hearts, that we would experience the answer to Jesus' prayer and that we would live and pray along those lines ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. You can stand, let's sing. Your blood has washed away.
All right, you can be seated. We'd like to take just a few minutes to answer some questions. Um, so if there are some questions, feel free to ask them. We always want to be a place where, um, where we can ask our questions and uh, we will take, it, take them seriously. And so um, Justin will kick us off here with a couple and you might need to step over just a little bit oh. so the live stream, mm -hmm. so the internet knows you exist. Okay, so. keep going, keep going. I think you're good. Right there, okay. Um, yeah, I've got a, I've got a few questions, okay. uh, and then I'll ask one or two and then I'll open it up to you guys. Um, let's see here. There's a lot of questions. Um, I guess one question is you sort of suggested that we pray this prayer and in what sense it's, it's not the Lord's prayer, which is right. kind of given as a model prayer. And yep. I guess in what sense, how do we appropriate Scripture is prayer, and particularly here where Jesus is praying. I guess, I guess right. what is that? Right. Maybe if you could walk us through. Interestingly, this didn't make it in the sermon, but there's actually some parallels between the Lord's Prayer and this one, praying for God's glory and, you know, these, these kinds of things, like praying for ourselves and these, some of these realities. So there is some matchup with the Lord's Prayer. And I guess what I was trying to say is that these themes of, of, of praying for Christ's glory, mm -hmm. those five main requests that are in there, praying for His glory, praying for the saints to be preserved, um, saying, praying that there would be holiness in who we are, unity and union. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know that you could take absolutely everything because there's a lot in here just that's unique to what Jesus has done. And I think it'd be okay to pray thanking God for those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we can't just take it, copy and paste it over top of ours. But the themes, the heart that Jesus have and has in his prayers, I would encourage us to have that same heart for those same things. That if these are on Jesus's heart, this is what he's praying if I want my prayers to be answered, maybe I'll just pray what he wants. To, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so if I want to go get some momentum on some answered prayers, maybe praying what Jesus prays. Yeah, yeah. Would be a good way to, to start. So. Yeah, yeah. And that as we pray what Jesus prays, it shapes our own hearts yeah. more and more. I begin to want what I pray. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one of the questions, kind of practical questions, I mean, a prayer on unity seems kind of a very appropriate considering that there's politics, masks, not masks. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that are causing all sorts of tensions in yeah. society and in churches. And yeah. I saw a headline uh, in the newspaper around the election where people are kicking each other out of each other's families based on how they're voting and all sorts of yep. things. Um, so I guess one of the questions I have with regards to the church is how do we discern those things that the church um, should, should divide over? But then also how do we handle those things, I guess, and this is may, maybe the main question is, how do we handle those things that should not split the church? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's not an easy question. That's a big <laughs> question. That's a whole series of sermons itself. But yeah, I, you know, there's, um, I think Al Mohler came up with something that's really helpful called theological triage, which is like, if you're on the battlefield and you got 20 people that are injured, how do you determine what the most effective you know, you can't necessarily treat everybody, so you treat the most serious injuries first, right? And so this idea of theological triage means that there are some things in the Christian faith that are non-negotiable. You do not have these, you are not a Christian. Um, and then there's like second tier issues that are like, okay, you don't have to believe those to be a Christian, but you really probably need to believe them together in order to have a church together. Like you've just got to decide one way or the other. Um, and then there's a lot of other things that are um, that maybe good Christians can be in the same church, love Jesus, and just disagree about. Maybe try to persuade one another, 
but really could just be happy members of the same church without any issue. And so I think we have to try to figure those things out. I think the Apostles' Creed is a good example mm-hmm. of what that first order is, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're not uniting just around some nebulous idea of Jesus. We're uniting around who Jesus actually is and who he said, what he came to do. So it's got to be that. But then within that unity, there might be different churches that might not be able to gather and do church in the same way because of some secondary things, but still could be in cooperation and kingdom work. So there could be levels of unity there together. But mm-hmm. this idea of, um, I don't want to offend, I don't want to slander anyone that I am going to spend eternity with, because that's going to be awkward, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> now, I might have a tense conversation. I might disagree with them. I might not even be able to be in the same exact church with them, but I do not want to slander anyone I have to spend eternity with. I do not want to stand before the Lord mm-hmm. on that front. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I, I think it's, uh, that's, that's kind of some ideas there. But yeah, mm-hmm. that, which, that which is central to the gospel must be united around among all Christians. Mm-hmm. And it's not unity to include someone who denies those. Mm-hmm. That's not a true unity. It's got to be a Jesus-centered unity mm-hmm. on his terms, the way he said it. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Okay. That's good. So that's kind of kind of an answer. Questions? Anyone have point of clarification? Yes, yeah. Sonia. Great question. We'll have to ask him when we get there. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, that's a great question. I think every time that it comes up, it is in the context of wanting to give encouragement to believers that Jesus is still advocating before the Father with you. So yes, in some sense, he's seated. So his work is completed. You know, because a priest never sits down. He's always got more sacrifices. He's always got more. So the fact that the, the fact that the high priest has sat down at the right hand of the father means that atonement is complete and sufficient. There isn't any more need for more atonement. But his work of interceding for us seems to be something that is still needed, that there is something that as long as Christ is there and he hasn't forgotten his people, like if he were to forget his people, they would be lost. So he is still holding them, and there's a verbal exchange. There's still a, yeah, that still keeps his people saved, mm-hmm. keeps them persevering mm-hmm. in the faith. So yeah. and I basically all that to say, I don't know why that's the case, but they have decided that that was what, mm-hmm. how redemption would work, and that's meant to be super encouraging. Mm-hmm. And I think to motivate our prayer, let's pray a whole lot more than we do. Because we have a God who's actually praying somehow in this mysterious way. The Father and the Son are in constant conversation about us mm-hmm. and for our good mm-hmm. and to give us grace. So let us join the conversation and ask for that same grace, mm-hmm. right? So, Yeah, I think that part of it too is that God is inherently relational. Uh, and so it's not as if God talks with the persons of the Trinity, talk with each other because they're uninformed. But there is a dynamic of relationality that I think is a part of what's going on. And here, Christ invites us into that. Uh, so I think that language is more than just for even, you know, even among humans. It's not just because people need to know uh, in one sense, like that they're devoid of information. But 
Yeah. Because there, something in our speech connects us to each other. Yeah. Yeah, in Genesis 1, it, let us make man in our image. So it was mm-hmm. like this conversation yeah. even in Genesis 1. To, let's make man in our image. Yeah, let's do it. So anyway. Yes, yeah. go ahead. Do I just restate that? Uh, yeah, discussion. I'm not exactly sure I follow. Um, so I'll restate it. Then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So in John chapter 2, the reason he's resistant to turn the water into wine is because his hour's not yet come, which seems to refer to his public ministry, that his miraculous public ministry. Um, I was using it today to refer to his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And so those seem to maybe be slightly different things. Uh, what I was doing was trying to trace his use of the word my hour, because in 7, 8 and eight twenty, his public miraculous ministry clearly has started, but he says my hour is not yet come. And then in 12, I think it was, he says the hour is coming. So yeah, I think you make a point that maybe in John chapter two, he's speaking primarily of like, hey, my public mom, <laughs> mom, you're, you know, it's not quite the time for all the miracles, but okay, let's do it. And yeah, so I think you maybe make a point that maybe the hour is working a little differently there. But, mm-hmm. but as it comes out, particularly in John 7, 8, and 12, I think it's clearly like, all right, you know, the, uh, the final work of my kingdom isn't, isn't yet at hand. So mm-hmm. good point, mm-hmm. good catch. I think, that's, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. State yeah, yeah. So the question is, Jesus often goes and prays. Uh, in the other Gospels, we see him go off and pray by himself. But here, it seems to be a prayer meant to be overheard for the uh, building up of the, the disciples and the church. And is yeah. that the case? How do we... I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Because he is about to go off by himself in just a minute and go into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's going to leave some behind, take some a little further, and then go off by himself. And so... Um, but even somehow we overhear elements of that prayer too. So I don't mm-hmm. know if the disciples, I don't know how these things got recorded by the power of the Holy Spirit. But yeah, I definitely, it definitely seems like at first I was thinking that maybe this was a private prayer, but then in the context, as I studied it going, no, he's going straight from in this world, you will have trouble, take heart. I've overcome this, the world. And then it's like, almost like he's looking up to heaven going, father, the hour has come. And yeah, I think it is. He goes into such description about what he's been doing that I do think that it is meant to be overheard mm-hmm. and I think is meant for us to hear it today, right? Mm-hmm. Is that he made it very public in front of his disciples so that it would be preserved for us so that we would know, I think, the heart of Jesus for us 
and I think also be a foreshadowing, I think, of the kind of praying he continues to do on behalf of his disciples, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which really kind of paradigm shifts us a little bit of going, oh, if he's praying for those things, <laughs> maybe my priorities are just a little out. Maybe I'm praying for good things, but I'm, I maybe, maybe I'm missing the heart of Jesus in the things that I'm praying for versus the things he prays for. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Good. Yep. And not to say that other things aren't worth praying for. We're called to pray for a lot of things. So I'm not trying to say this is the only thing. But I am saying that I, I do think that this is meant to be central. If this is what Jesus is praying, man, I want to be with Jesus and see the things he prays for mm-hmm. above. Not my will, but yours be done. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's in the Lord's Prayer. So, yeah. um, if you would please stand for our benediction. Thanks for being here today. And I hope that you were encouraged and edified this morning. I I hope that you'll connect with somebody before you go, have an opportunity to pray for one another, uh, encourage one another, maybe set up coffee or lunch. We want to be a a place where there's growing friendships and uh, uh, a place where everybody belongs. So Hebrews 7, 23 uh, through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. What wonderful news. Let's live into that this week. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.